So today on the Cyclo Edition, we're privileged to be interviewing Dr. M. Christina White, who is the William H. and Jeanette G. Lichen Professor of Chemistry at the University of Illinois. Dr. White completed her PhD at John Hopkins with Gary Posner and then moved to Harvard for a postdoc with Eric Jacobson. Since starting her career at Illinois in 2002, Dr. White has been interested in developing highly selective oxidation reactions. She's a leader in the field of CH functionalization, having developed catalysts that affect selective oxidation by relying on subtle differences in the sterics and electronics of multiple CH bonds. Recently, the White Group published a paper in Nature where they disclosed a regio and chemo-selective oxidative methylation strategy. So Dr. White, we're really excited to have you on the show and hear more about your recent methylation paper as well as your research program as a whole. Great, thanks so much for having me, Matt and uh, Grace. Yes, thank you for being here. So starting right in, uh, what scientific questions are you most interested to answer in your group? So as this slide um, sort of shows, this is my current group. We are a very synthesis-driven catalysis group. So we're really excited to develop practical reactions that will change the way um, scientists make molecules. Um, in, in doing that, a lot of times we have to invent new catalysts and, and do things that in some cases people thought weren't possible before. So we also do things like study mechanism and try to uncover new reactivity and selectivity principles that perhaps had not really been, uh, that had been previously overlooked. Yeah, so you mentioned the types of problems that your group is interested in. What strategies have you used to solve those problems in the past uh, years in your group? Thanks, Matt. So I think, um, you know, as chemists, right, we have uh, for centuries been very fascinated by uh, small molecules that elicit biological functions. And so really, in a, in a nutshell, we're very excited about developing reactions that enable scientists to uh, use small molecules to discover function more rapidly. Um, so, you know, what are ways that you can do this? So one way um, is to think about, you know, how does a molecule elicit function within the body? And, and the way that it typically does that is it sort of has a, a hydrocarbon core, a skeleton, um, and that hydrocarbon core is uh, something that is filled with very strong carbon-carbon and carbon-hydrogen bonds, and in fact, so many of them that we don't even draw them in, and, and I think it's pretty obvious from uh, this slide why we don't. Um, and, you know, these, uh, you know, carbon-carbon bonds um, in, in this hydrocarbon skeleton is really what displays the functional groups like oxygen uh, to things in our body like proteins to elicit a physiological response. Um, so we, you know, kind of asked ourselves, um, you know, what happens when you do atomistic changes like taking a carbon-hydrogen bond and introducing a new oxygen? Well, it turns out that um, this can change the properties dramatically of small molecules. Uh, it can change the way they taste, it can change the way they smell, um, and perhaps most interestingly, um, it can change their properties and, and take a molecule that was not a drug and convert it into a drug. Um, so, you know, that got us to sort of ask this question, how is it that organic chemists 
uh, introduce oxygen uh, or introduce nitrogen for that matter into complex molecules. And typically what we do um, as organic chemists is we take pre-oxidized starting materials. Um, sometimes these come from nature and then we repurpose this oxygen functionality. We uh, use it to create carbon-carbon scaffolds um, while introducing new oxygen functionality and nitrogen functionality. Um, so this is a, a really fantastic approach, um, especially if you have a specific molecule in mind that you would like to make. Um, in many cases, you can access very complex molecules on much larger scales and much more rapidly than you could get them from nature, at, at least initially. Um, however, if you are a chemist that is looking for function uh, and would like to, for example, explore the taxol framework and replace a hydrogen for an oxygen, let's say, um, this approach now has some real limitations, right? Because what it's going to require you to do is to resynthesize the molecule from scratch. Um, and as you know, all of you perhaps uh, either appreciate or will come to appreciate when you join a synthesis group, um, you know, doing one chemical step even uh, is a very uh, time and labor intensive process. And so you can imagine doing something like 37 chemical steps to make hydroxylated derivatives of uh, something like taxol is not really feasible um, as a way to explore for function. And so really that kind of limits the chemical space that organic chemists that are interested in looking for function can access in, in sort of a practical um, kind of way. So really what our lab aims to do is it aims to uh, discover ways, practical ways, practical reactions that can allow you uh, to take um, you know, what looks like a forest of CH bonds and take one hydrogen and do this atomistic change of converting it to oxygen, um, hopefully taking molecules that are not active and converting them into powerful new drugs. So that, that's, that's what we, we are aiming to do. Yeah, so you talked um, and you've mentioned a lot about um, a late stage transformation to install an oxygen or a nitrogen. And many papers have been published recently uh, that are doing similar transformations, but with enzymes. Right. Uh, how do you view the difference between like small molecule catalysis and, and the future of like enzymatic reactions? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Grace. And I mean, that's really on point because that's, um, you know, really the way that nature does do it, right? So all of these, uh, you know, systems that I'm showing you here, um, the key oxygen in nature is actually installed with uh, those kinds of enzymes, with iron enzymes generally, and oftentimes P450s. Um, and these enzymes are, are sort of ubiquitous. They uh, exist in, in plants, in trees, in bacteria, um, and in fact, they exist in us. So right now, uh, in your liver, you're probably metabolizing uh, caffeine, maybe, if you had a cup of coffee. Um, and so it's a very good question, you know, why wouldn't we, um, as synthetic chemists, uh, simply use these very, very abundant iron enzymes uh, to search for function? Um, 
And so, uh, you know, I guess the first question is, you know, how, how do these enzymes work? Um, you know, in a very general sense, hydrocarbon oxidation, so CH oxidation is a very high energy process. These are, um, in addition to being kind of ubiquitous bonds, which maybe you got an impression of when I, I sort of drew them all out on that structure before, um, they're also very inert bonds. So, uh, for example, if you take a hydrocarbon in the air at room temperature, nothing happens. Um, what you have to do, of course, is apply a lot of heat. Uh, and this is really combustion, right? So you get very non-selective oxidation that ultimately takes you uh, to CO2. So what enzymes are really great at doing, and, and these catalysts are, are great at doing, is lowering the activation barrier of this CH oxidation process and achieving really, um, as you can see here, kind of remarkable levels of selectivity in doing this. Um, so why, why wouldn't we use these enzymes? Well, you know, then the question becomes, how do these enzymes, um, you know, what is their strategy for the selectivity? Um, and, you know, their strategy is through specificity. So you know, let's take here an example of artemisinin. And let's say I, I want to oxidize it, and, and enzymes are known that do this at the C10 position. And the strategy of these cytochrome P450 enzymes um, is to create a binding pocket for artemisinin that will position uh, this CH bond at the very high energy metal oxidant that does this oxidation to affect a CH hydroxylation process. Um, so the, the issue becomes, uh, what if you know, as a you know, pharmaceutical chemist, I would really like to oxidize something with a topologically and functionally different um, you know, kind of motif or, or, or core. Um, you know, like erythromycin. Well, you know, the enzyme that worked for artemisinin uh, is likely not to work for erythromycin, right? Because it's, it's very different uh, topologically and functionally. So now I'm going to have to get a new enzyme uh, specifically for this hydroxylation. So again, you know, it kind of depends on what your purpose is. I mean, if you have one specific molecule in mind, uh, this could be a great strategy. And, and in fact, there are many uh, really remarkable examples of enzymes now being used uh, in process development in pharmaceutical companies when there's a very specific target in mind. But if your goal, right, is really to broadly explore for function, you would like to do that with a lot of different types of molecules. And so, you know, this approach um, may not uh, may not be uh, the best one. Um, so, you know, we uh, thought a lot about that uh, as, a, as a group when we started. Um, and really, you know, when we started our group, um, you know, very prominent chemists uh, that were working in this area, um, you know, kind of felt that you had to use this approach. You had to either use um, sort of a molecular recognition approach, or you had to put a directing group on your molecule to direct where the oxidation was going to happen. Because, you know, there was this very well-founded um, idea that there's very little difference in the reactivity between CH bonds, particularly CH bonds of the same bond type. And so I think, um, you know, the, the meaning here was if you had sort of methylene CH bonds in, in a molecule, which you have a lot of those, um, that there's going to be very little difference in their reactivity. And, and that was very reasonable based on previous literature that really showed the only 
uh, preparative examples of CH oxidation uh, that achieve selectivity were ones with directing groups or um, you know, enzymatic molecular recognition type strategies. So we viewed it a little bit differently. We, we sort of took this analogy of imagine you're in a plane and uh, you know, you're looking down at a forest full of trees. Um, and I ask you, you know, okay, can you pick out one tree for me? Um, you would say, you know, no way, right? Because they all look the same from up here. But um, if you had the right tools, um, so for example, binoculars, um, you could see that you know, these trees are actually in different environments. Um, so maybe some trees are next to a waterfall, um, you know, other trees might be next to a lake. Um, and then other trees might be next to a mountain. And so, you know, what we uh, really aimed to do was to find the right catalyst that could distinguish between CH bonds based on differences in their chemical environments, even if they were, um, you know, kind of of the same bond type, so very similar bond association energies. Um, and so, you know, we were, uh, you know, kind of drawn to very classic physical organic examples and sort of the lessons that we learn as undergrads that, you know, radical bromination is more selective than chlorination because um, you form a, a, a weaker bond. And so this goes through an endothermic process where you have a late product-like transition state where maybe the differences um, in the chemical environments of the CH bonds are more felt in that transition state. And we kind of felt that this was one of the big problems with hydroxylation chemistry, that most of the oxidants really um, were going through uh, an oxygen-centered radical of some sort. And this was leading to very strong bonds being formed and very exothermic, um, unselective processes. However, very interestingly, take it back to your question about nature and about uh, you know, these uh, cytochrome P450 enzymes, it's been calculated that the oxidant that they use, this iron oxo, actually uh, goes through a very endothermic, um, sort of late product-like type of transition state. Um, and so we were very inspired by this. And so really what we kind of set out to do was to mimic this oxidant. Um, and so certainly in, in sort of a very general sense, others had tried this before and they tried it in, you know, I would almost say kind of like in a literal sense. Uh, so they, what they tried to do was to rip out the, porphyrin active site from a cytochrome P450 and say, well, you know, we can just form the oxo um, in, a, in a flask, right? Um, and, you know, unfortunately, this for some strange reason didn't work. Um, so you can see here, you get very poor reactivity, um, really no uh, significant site selectivity based on environmental factors. Um, and actually what was most interesting to us was how different this oxidant was from the cytochrome P450 oxidant. So for example, you form long-lived carbon-centered radicals um, that racemize stereocenters and open cyclopropane rings. Um, you get a lot of auto-oxidation products, which are very reminiscent of um, Fenton chemistry, which is the chemistry of hydroxide radicals. So for whatever reason, right, um, the oxidant that, um, you know, that this is forming is not like this iron oxo um, that is forming in cytochrome P450s, which is predicted to, you know, should be very, very selective. Um, 
And, you know, we kind of hypothesized that maybe it was the fact that in uh, the reaction flask, you can't mimic this cysteine ligation. And maybe that was part of the problem. So, um, you know, but others, you know, kind of had hypothesized that the problem was, um, you know, the lack of this sort of molecular recognition element of the protein superstructure. So again, um, a lot of emphasis was placed on trying to recreate um, this um, molecular recognition element. So, you know, we felt that this wasn't the place to be searching. So we looked in, I would say, a very different place. Um, what we decided to do was to look at non-heme systems, which also um, make up a certain class of enzymes that do these hydroxylations in nature. Um, and ultimately, this ended up being um, at least one of the solutions. Um, so we discovered this catalyst, um, which is known as iron PDP. Um, and this catalyst, um, you know, is going through a very sort of biomimetic mechanism, um, we feel like. So we, we uh, have done studies that have shown that the hydrogen peroxide and carboxylic acid come together at the metal center. And this carboxylic acid additive, uh, acetic acid, is critical, uh, we think, for promoting this oxo formation by donating a proton to the hydrogen peroxide and getting water to leave as a leaving group. And then this iron oxocarboxylate, which we believe to be the active oxidant, um, you know, we think is in fact very analogous to a P450 oxo in that it's achieving a very late product-like transition state where now you can sense very minor differences in the electronic environments of CH bonds, um, the steric and stereoelectronic environments um, of, of CH bonds. So specifically, this iron oxo is very electrophilic, so it prefers to oxidize the most electron-rich site in a molecule, um, sort of irrespective of its bond dissociation energy, as I'm going to show you. Um, also, this catalyst now has uh, an approach cone trajectory, so unlike the heme, it's not Flat. Um, the CH bond has to pass through this approach cone trajectory to hit the active oxidant. So you can also distinguish CH bonds now based on, on steric properties. Um, we believe that this uh, goes through a hydrogen atom abstraction to form this very short-lived carbon-centered radical. So that slightly sp2 hybridizes that carbon. And we believe that this now enables you to distinguish between sites based on stereoelectronic factors like releasing ring strain in the transition state. And then finally, um, you know, if you remove acetic acid from your reaction mixture and you have a carboxylic acid on your molecule, this can actually act to direct the site of oxidation. Um, so the other aspect of this is the recombination step or the functionalization, right? So um, as I mentioned to you, I, I said this was a short-lived carbon-centered radical, just like you would form in an enzyme. And the reason we think this is because there's not even enough time to do a bond rotation before you get recombination or rebound of this iron hydroxyl. So all of these reactions happen with complete stereoretention in, in the hydroxylation step. 
So in addition to this being a really uh, favorable property for maintaining a stereochemistry in your molecules and not scrambling stereocenters, we believe that it also leads to the preparative yields that we're observing with this catalyst. So now you can take one equivalent of substrate and get out very preparatively useful yields. And we believe part of that at least is because this carbon-centered radical doesn't have time now to uh, do other deleterious uh, pathways, that it immediately recombines to form the product. Um, so with this, now uh, we have a very different view than we had before 2007. Um, so unlike viewing this as a forest, iron PDP is really our tool that allows us to see CH bonds in a new light um, and see them, you know, for, um, you know, that for the fact that they are in different uh, electronic, steric, and stereoelectronic environments. Um, and iron PDP actually weighs all of these factors equally. So when you have a, a site on the molecule that is very electron rich, relatively sterically unhindered um, and activated through uh, stereoelectronic factors such as alleviation of 1,3-diaxial strain, that site will be preferentially oxidized on the molecule even in the presence of siege uh, bonds that have a much weaker bond association energy. Um, we took this understanding then and developed a catalyst that now weighs one of these factors more heavily than the others. And so CF3 PDP now weighs sterics more heavily than electronics or stereoelectronics. And so now we can alter site selectivity for the first time, not having to change the molecule at all, but just simply changing the catalyst and, and do so um, in preparatively useful yields both ways. Um, in fact, um, this understanding led us to develop a quantitative predictive tool that allows you now to predict the site of oxidation um, you know, in complex molecules based on the properties of the CH bonds and how they interact with the properties of the catalyst um, to give the, the observed site selectivity that, that we see. Um, so really this kind of led to um, a new area uh, which I, we're very, very proud of and, and is something that, you know, as, as you mentioned, Grace, is a very active area of research right now, this concept of late stage functionalization. So the ability now um, that we first demonstrated to take complex molecules either from nature or from the laboratory and directly make this atomistic change of CH to CO and then explore that change for potentially new function. Um, and you can see you can do this uh, you know, with a great deal of diversity that, that can be attained. Um, we've also been very excited to see that others have taken this in, in different directions. So for example, streamlining synthesis, a concept um, that, that we put out in the early 2000s of you know, if you can introduce oxygen very early, very late in a synthesis instead of early, um, you can streamline the synthesis by not having to carry the oxygen through every single step and protect it, deprotect it, manipulate it. Um, and you can see here many examples where this concept is being used with iron PDP um, to really, really uh, affect some beautiful streamlined syntheses of complex natural products. Um, so, you know, ultimately what I would say to your answer, Grace, I mean, this was a very, very long explanation, but, um, you know, what I would say the thing that you know, a man-made catalyst can do that maybe uh, nature's 
catalyst enzymes can't do is we can achieve selectivity with generality. And this can enable um, you know, people, chemists that are looking for function to rapidly explore function through this idea of this atomistic change of CH to CO. Um, and you can see here in a wide range of different types of, of natural product settings and emerging uh, pharmaceutical settings. So shifting to your paper that you recently published on methylation, mm -hmm. how did you get into that area of research and why is late stage methylation important in areas like medicinal chemistry? That's a, that's a great question, uh, Matt. So, um, you know, this atomistic change uh, is not exclusive to oxygen. Um, as, as Grace pointed out, it also um, is something that uh, happens with nitrogen um, and also, interestingly, with methyl groups. Um, so it has been known for a very long time that if you take especially heterocycles and you replace a hydrogen adjacent to a nitrogen with a methyl group that you can dramatically enhance the potency of many small molecule drugs. Um, and so this effect, however, is uh, it's not well understood and it's not always predictable. And so, um, you know, there's, there's uh, the desire to test it, but then there's also the recognition that there's going to be a lot of synthetic overhead um, that is associated with testing this. So, um, you know, this is sort of the idealized path uh, to introducing this methyl, but realistically, uh, the way that people were doing this up until, um, you know, now is that they were doing de novo syntheses, um, starting with uh, simple starting materials that had methyls incorporated incorporated into them that would translate into the product. Um, so some, some really uh, tremendous work had been done uh, in, in trying to do alkylations alpha to heteroatoms in heterocycles. Um, and these typically went through uh, a deprotonation alpha to the nitrogen, followed by a nucleophilic intermediate, and then trapped an electrophilic methyl um, or other alkyl groups. And I would say that um, this methodology has really been tremendous in terms of looking at a wide range of different alkyl groups that can be incorporated. Um, however, the big limitation with the previous methods were the types of heterocycles that could be functionalized. And you can see um, this is pretty limited and it's limited due to site selectivity issues and also functional group uh, tolerance issues. Um, and so what we aim to do is to really expand the scope of the heterocycles um, that, that could be methylated and the stage at which they could be methylated, meaning um, not at, at these very early stages, but rather at very, very late stages, either at the drug stage or very close to, to the drug stage. Yeah, and I think we'll see, like as you continue talking about your paper, or if our listeners have read, read this paper, that what you have done in this paper is very revolutionary to exactly what you were saying, where um, you can now insert the methyl group at a late stage versus that being often one of the very first steps of a synthesis or having to go back and resynthesize the entire molecule to bring forward that methyl group. Uh, so how exactly did your group approach this strategy and how are you able to accomplish this? Yeah, no, that's great, um, Grace. And that was a really nice summary, by the way, of, of the paper. Um, so, um, you know, I think uh, this is kind of a snapshot of, of, what, uh, of what we were able to achieve. And, and I should point out, um, you know, that 
uh, you know, this work would not be possible without two really phenomenal students in my group, PhD students, Kaibo Fang and Rondi Quevedo. Um, this is a picture of when the paper got accepted. It's sort of a selfie and uh, when the paper first appeared online. So, um, you know, these guys really get all the credit. They're the ones that really developed the strategy that I'm going to be describing to you. Um, so, yeah, so you sort of asked what were um, you know, kind of how this fits into our previous work and, and what were the, the previous advances that made this possible. Um, so a little bit of background. I mean, you know, one thing that I would I sort of point out and maybe you guys, um, you know, being as sharp as you are noticed, um, but our previous work, uh, we didn't have any aromatics in our molecules that we were oxidizing. Um, and so uh, another very talented student in the group before this work, uh, Jin Peng Zhao, um, sort of figured out why that was. And the reason was that um, this iron PDP catalyst um, is very good actually at doing aromatic oxidations. Um, and so you can see here, um, if you take this molecule and you try to do a methylene oxidation on it, um, really what you get is aromatic oxidation that's pretty unselective. So, um, you know, this is sort of reflected in this chemoselectivity. And, and actually what Jin Peng found was that actually most of the oxidants out there that were reported to do methylene oxidations um, either had a similar problem or they were just very poorly reactive. Um, and so, you know, we started thinking about how to solve this problem um, in terms of, uh, again, sort of relating our catalyst to sort of a, a biomimetic type of, of mechanism and how does, uh, you know, nature, how do P450s oxidize aromatics? Um, and so, you know, P450s oxidize aromatics um, two primary ways. One is through an electron transfer pathway. And there have been some really nice studies that have shown that if you reduce uh, the, the redox potential of this iron oxo and also make it more basic, um, that you can sort of um, shut down this pathway to some extent and promote CH oxidation. So we were aware of the fact that manganese oxos um, actually have a lower redox potential and also are much more basic. And so, um, you know, this you can see just the simple swap of metals here of iron to manganese. Um, gave us a, a tremendous boost in chemoselectivity. So the other way that these P450 enzymes uh, are able to do aromatic oxidation is to uh, do an epoxidation. And so um, this pathway is actually a, a very sterically demanding pathway relative to CH oxidation. And so by now switching to this much more sterically demanding or encumbered ligand, CF3 PDP, you can see that our chemoselectivity becomes nearly perfect. Um, but our reactivity is still quite, um, you know, poor. So we went back again to our mechanism and considered um, the carboxylic acid and, and its role, right? So I told you that, you know, we believed it was donating a proton and promoting oxo formation, and then it remains on the metal as a ligand during the CH abstraction uh, step. And so we considered uh, changing the electronics of the carboxylic acid. And you can see now by moving from acetic acid to chloroacetic acid, we now uh, don't uh, in any way deleteriously affect the chemoselectivity, but we significantly improve our uh, overall reactivity, our yield. 
And so then we went back and, and checked, okay, do we need all of these components? Uh, and in fact, the answer is yes. It's a very sort of synergistic type system. Uh, so if you uh, simply keep everything the same, but just change uh, the ligand back to the simple PDP, you get a drop in, in the yield. Uh, if you keep everything the same and change the metal back to iron, um, you get a drop in yield and in the chemoselectivity. Um, so with the system, we, we had demonstrated that we could now do um, you know, oxidations in the presence of these aromatic moieties um, in, in drugs uh, and very strong bond oxidations, so these methylene oxidations to form ketones. Um, so, you know, this is kind of where we started, Grace. So we, we thought, you know, we want to use this catalyst that now will allow us to do this kind of transformation on drugs um, that have aromatic molecules present in them. Um, and, and we thought, you know, if we could use this catalyst to hydroxylate such a compound, then um, this hydroxyl group, which is, you'll notice here, this is going to be a hemiaminal structure potentially could be promoted um, with some type of uh, uh, an activating agent like a Lewis acid or fluorine to form an aminium. Um, and then potentially this aminium could be uh, reacted with, we hoped a very mild nucleophilic now methylating reagent uh, to, to give this product. Now, there were very there were a lot of challenges um, actually in this pathway, um, and there were still a lot of challenges that remained in the oxidation. Um, you know, it was unclear what would happen if we had multiple sites open, uh, including ones that potentially could be more activated, um, alpha to the heteroatom. Um, there were chemoselectivity issues if we had, for example. Um, neutral or electron-rich aromatics. So the previous system that did methylene oxidations could not tolerate neutral or electron-rich aromatics. It would still oxidize those. And then possibly the most challenging aspect of this was preventing the over-oxidation, so the oxidation of this alcohol to the ketone. So you recall I told you in our previous examples, um, you know, we were going from methylenes to ketones, and we were doing that through a hydroxylated intermediate, which means this catalyst is a good catalyst for hydroxyl oxidation, right, um, to, to ketones. And so really this was one of the key challenges that we had to overcome in being able to affect this strategy. So then, you know, we get to the second part, which is the methylation. And now, unlike the previous cases, right, we're using a nucleophilic methyl source, which is also going to be basic. And so now we, we're going to deal with things like potentially elimination as a side reaction. And also now, if we do have other electrophilic functionality, right, it can compete with our uh, iminium ion for, for the site of alkylation. So, you know, this is, is sort of what, what we uh, faced. And so, again, uh, Kaibo and Rondi um, went through and, and overcame all of these challenges. And so, as you might imagine, iron PDP, as you would expect, uh, gave predominantly uh, aromatic oxidation. Um, and 
manganese CF3PDP under the conditions that we originally reported it under um, gave predominantly over oxidation to this imid carbonyl. And so this is uh, where one of the major breakthroughs came in, which was sort of the realization by uh, Kaibo that we're dealing now with a very weak CH bond, an activated CH bond. So there may be the possibility of lowering the catalyst loading and lowering the amount of oxidant being used um, to try to, you know, um, kind of uh, avoid this over-oxidation of the hydroxyl. And, and pretty remarkably, um, now at very, very low catalyst loadings, um, 0.5 mole percent, he was able to effectively shut down this image formation. And so um, when they looked back at this process, Kaibo and Rondi found that in fact, uh, and again, I think pretty remarkably, this catalyst now is a much better catalyst at these loadings for doing um, activated CH bond oxidation than it is at doing hydroxyl group oxidation, um, which is, you know, there aren't, as far as I know, many catalysts that, that would prefer to oxidize a CH bond versus um, a hydroxyl group. Um, so that was, uh, I think, really exciting. And here you can see, again, really remarkable substrate to catalyst uh, ratio for this very challenging kind of transformation. So the next, um, I would say, big uh, thing that needed to, to be developed is how do you activate this hemiaminal um, and prevent things like um, you know, elimination? And so uh, one way that you can think about doing this, of course, is to use uh, make it into a better the hydroxyl into a better leaving group and kind of a traditional way to do this might be mesylation but you can see um, we predominantly got enamine formation which then to tomorize to this enone um, so then we looked at okay can we just use a electrophilic and oxophilic lewis acid um, and bf3 etherate uh, in combination with trimethyl aluminum worked for this methylation for this lactam however when you start Start going to more, um, you know, sort of sensitive um, Lewis basic functionality like this carbamate on this oxazolidinone. Uh, what we found was a, a, a poor yield due to opening now of this oxazolidinone, and so now this was a, a significant challenge. The fact that we were getting now offsite uh, alkylation at electrophilic functionality, and so um, you know what we found was that instead of using BF3, if you fluorinated um, alpha to the nitrogen, trimethyl aluminum is a very fluorophilic um, type of, of organometallic reagent. And so now this could promote uh, aminium formation. And now this coordination of the fluoride to the trimethyl aluminum could also promote um, this as an alkylating, a very mild alkylating reagent. Um, and we found now using DAST or, or deoxyfluor that you could get very uh, preparative yields now of things that had very sensitive Lewis basic functionality in them. Um, and we also found other activation strategies, and and you know, and this actually turned out to be a really critical part of uh, this method. The fact that you can use different ways of forming the aminium, um, you know, depending on the molecule that you're looking at. So having these choices really is what enabled um, having this kind of very broad scope that Grace uh, mentioned. So here I'm showing you kind of the cores. Um, and, you know, as I, I mentioned, um, you know, you can use 
uh, the DAST, which is shown in yellow when you have a functionality that might be sensitive uh, to a nucleophilic reagent. Uh, otherwise, you can use BF3 etherate. But again, one of the advantages that I'll point out is there are cases uh, like these papyridine substrates where it's not always predictable which activation method is the best um, because it turns out that these are very prone to elimination to form enamines. Um, so you can see, you know, in one case here that that I'm showing, BF3 is uniquely effective, but there are others that are very analogous um, where DAST was uniquely effective. So really this ability to um, you know, kind of look at both ends up uh, really enabling this method tremendously. Um, to point out some site selectivity, um, you know, interesting aspects here. So we have many cases where we have substitution, alpha to the nitrogen, um, and much, much weaker bonds, and we, always um, you know, oxidize and methylate at the site that is less sterically hindered. And you can see here an example where the substitution isn't directly alpha to the nitrogen, but beta, and even that blocks um, oxidation and methylation um, at that site. Um, we can do this with drugs, uh, drug precursors, derivatives, and natural products like peptides um, and, and terpenes. And the thing to point out here is really uh, the remarkable chemoselectivity of this process now. So I told you before, um, you know, at the previous conditions with the manganese CF3 PDP that we're doing methylene oxidations, we couldn't tolerate uh, electron neutral or electron rich aromatics. Here under these new conditions, you can see electron neutral aromatics and electron rich aromatics um, being tolerated for this process. So I, I do want to point out here that this was a collaboration that was done with Pfizer and chemists at Pfizer, uh, two who are shown here. So this is Jeff and Martins over here. And really, um, you know, they tremendously influenced this work. They really kind of showed us, uh, you know, what medicinal chemists uh, are really looking for in terms of being able to do this method at late stages and, and what types of drug scaffolds and motifs are most interesting to medicinal chemists. So. I, I wanted to point that out here. Um, here, again, is another example of a complex pharmaceutical. Tetazolid is an antibiotic, um, and you can see here it getting methylated uh, in a very preparatively useful yield. I will point out that um, we looked at the precursor of tetazolid, uh, maybe anticipating that um, this very uh, nitrogen-rich heterocycle um, portion would not be tolerated. And we were very, very excited to find that actually we got comparable yields with the precursor as we did um, with the, uh, the actual drug itself. And you can see that this reaction scales very nicely, just as the previous ones do. Um, so we're able to, to do this on, on gram scales, no, no problems. Um, we were able to do magic methyl substrates. So again, here I'm showing you the ability to introduce methyl from this very advanced um, RORC precursor. Um, and again, typically uh, medicinal chemists would do this starting with a very simple, commercial building block, but having to remake the molecule from, from scratch. So, you know, um, I think one of the, the next things people are, are sort of interested in is what what are the, the sort of new directions for methylation? And I think um, certainly one of the new directions is being able to introduce methyls, um, you know, with uh, intermediates other than just 
very activated iminium or oxoniums um, that, that we'd shown with this method. And so, you know, we do have some hints in this paper of, of ways that you can do that. So for example, um, in this magic methyl substrate, you'll note um, you know, that we are now going through an imine, um, which is a less activated uh, electrophile, obviously, than an iminium. So um, you know, with, with this imine, we had to use a stronger nucleophile, actually a Grignard at cryogenic temperatures, but we were able to, to methylate um, this very advanced, this, this drug um, directly. Um, using this method. And then ultimately, uh, one of the things that we're very excited about is introducing methyls now on carbocyclic cores, on you know, unactivated um, aliphatic uh, CH bonds. And so um, you know, here is again uh, another potential hint of, of how you could do this that we um, sort of published in, in this work. Um, so you know, as I mentioned before, this catalyst is capable of doing oxidations on strong uh, aliphatic CH bonds. And so in this case, uh, because of the substrate itself, uh, we stop at the hydroxylation and we get a diastereoselective hydroxylation here. And so actually Kaibo noticed that uh, from old literature, that the combination of a mesylated uh, hydroxyl with trimethyl aluminum could affect a methylation, presumably going through a carbocation intermediate. And what we found is that same um, sort of combination could affect methylation here. Um, and you can see again, um, you know, the ability to form one diastereomer potentially because of, of substrate control, um, you know, and the direction of, of methyl group attack. So yeah, so that, that, that's sort of the, the future directions, I think, some of the things that we're most excited about pursuing next with this work. Awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate that detailed explanation. I'm definitely not an expert in this field. And when I first read your methylation paper and you used manganese rather than iron, which is kind of what I'm familiar with, I didn't exactly know why the change was made. So yeah, thanks for that explanation. So over the course of your presentation so far, uh, you've discussed making carbon-oxygen bonds, carbon-nitrogen bonds, now carbon-carbon bonds for the methylation paper. Where do you hope that the field of CH oxidation reactions are going to go over the next like 20, 50 years? Yeah, um, that's a really great, great question, um, Grace. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that, that we've been most excited about or, or one of the things that we've been very excited about is just to kind of observe, um, you know, uh, like what uh, a paradigm shift um, in effect, uh, you know, our, our work has had on the community in terms of especially how the community views um, the reactivity of inert aliphatic siege bonds. So, you know, if there was one thing that I guess we would like to be remembered for, it's for changing the community's perspective in this regard. And so now, you know, because of, of this work that I described for you, you know, I think a lot of people now accept, even people that, that really didn't believe it at the beginning, uh, sort of are now, um, you know, kind of writing review articles and, and talking about how um, it's possible to distinguish CH bonds based on their, you know, environments. Um, and so, you know, we've been very excited to see, you know, other prominent researchers um, using kind of these rules, um, you know, to affect, as you mentioned, um, you know, kind of site-selective CH acidations. Uh, we've also used it um, in other ways for um, 
alkylations as well as aminations. And we've shown similar types of rules um, in those processes as well. So for example, in this um, you know, benzylic amination, we've shown the ability to, to select between benzylic sites based on properties like electronics and also sterics. Um, and so you know, I think this is uh, one of the, the great future directions is trying to develop catalysts that will continue to uh, change the site of um, you know, CH oxidation, amination, alkylation, um, you know, by changing the catalyst and not having to change the molecule and, and still being able to do this with a lot of generality and predictability. So that's one of the things that we're very excited about. Um, you know, I do think that also going um, you know, through other mechanisms will enable other types of unique reactivity and selectivity patterns to emerge. So in our group, we've had a long-standing program of doing allylic uh, functionalizations, going through carbon metal intermediates, uh, specifically carbon palladium intermediates, these palladium pi owls. Um, and these systems have really highlighted for us some sort of future directions in our other you know, oxo and, and nitrine and carbene type work, which is, you know, doing um, these types of bond formations with asymmetric induction and, and being able to control it based on the catalyst uh, properties. Also being able to use CH functionalization, not just as a way to introduce functionality, but as a way to do cross-coupling reactions. So, um, you know, in, in several of these cases now, we're able to take uh, very complex fragments and bring them together through CH functionalization. So I think all of those are um, kind of very exciting new directions in, in this area. Yeah, I think that's really powerful and just seeing the progression of your career and how that's influenced so many people and the way that we think about the different CH bonds is so inspiring to everyone, especially young chemists like us. Thanks so much. So Ray. I guess with that, uh, these were kind of our questions that we had prepared relative to science. And we just kind of wanted to end on like a positive, fun note. Yeah, um, that sounds great. So first, we just wanted to hear what's your favorite place to eat in Urbana Champagne? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, hopefully you guys will, will cut a chance to come here if you haven't been here already. I know many of you uh, were people that we were trying to recruit to come here. Um, so um, yeah, so this is my, my current group. And, and you know, first of all, I just want to say that um, you guys maybe know this, but um, for the PIs, you know, our ability to work with students like you, um, you know, and students like the ones in my group that are you know, just so um, driven and, and excited to kind of change, uh, you know, chemistry and change the way we make molecules and change the way that um, we think about chemical reactivity. I mean, that's the best part for sure of this job. Um, so uh, this is my favorite place to eat. Uh, this is uh, uh, this place called Pizza um, Antica. Um, and so it's uh, you know very very low key as you can see from this picture, um, and this was kind of a group celebration where we went there um, to um, kind of celebrate. I had just gotten um, uh, a chair, so so we were all there to kind of celebrate that, and it was a lot of fun. So um, it's really good if you ever get a chance. They're homemade pizzas, and it's a really nice laid back uh, kind of environment. Congratulations on the chair first. That's yeah, pretty thank amazing. You. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And these are, these are, um, so this is my group and then these are um, my sons. Uh, so this is Leonidas and this is uh, 
Todoraki, um, and uh, they were sort of the life of the party, as you can sort of see from this picture. That's fantastic. So when you're not doing science, do you have a favorite place to travel or a favorite place to vacation? I do, I do. So um, yeah, so it would definitely be anywhere in Greece, but um, you know, I'm actually from Greece, um, but I especially love the Peloponnesos. So if you guys have not been to Greece, um, it's not a place that many tourists visit, which I think is unfortunate, um, but it's one of the most beautiful places. So it's Southern Greece um, and you know, there are beautiful beaches. So this is Zaharo and, and it's a beautiful beach. Um, there are amazing sort of historically relevant places to see. Um, so this is uh, Mykines, uh, which is where um, the uh, Mycenaean civilization um, you know, sort of started and, and was rooted. Um, this is Nathplio, which is um, you know, a city that is uh, kind of, uh, you just walk around and there are just pieces of art everywhere that you can sort of, as you can see here, interact with. So um, yeah, so it, you know, I think if you guys ever get a chance to visit, especially this part of Greece, it's really extraordinary. That looks awesome. Oh. Uh, do you have, on the other side of that, a favorite university to visit? Yeah, so I would say um, someplace very far from Greece, but probably I would say Harvard. Uh, so, you know, as you guys mentioned, I, I did my postdoc at Harvard. Um, I didn't, uh, I didn't overlap with Teshegg, um, but it was an incredible place uh, to do science um, in, in the Jacobson group. This is um, Eric's uh, 60th birthday party uh, slash reunion. And uh, you know, all of these amazing scientists that are part of this family and that I got to interact with while I was there uh, really shaped who I am today as a scientist. And, and obviously, you know, Eric, um, you know, very much shaped who I am today as a scientist. So just for very, um, you know, uh, I guess, you know, for those reasons, going back is like going home. So, uh, so I always really love going back there. So last question. Um, <laughs> if you go to your website, you see these things called group posters, right? Which are for yes. recruitment. Yes. yes. And they're pretty and awesome. Is, yeah, you have yeah, one there. The most famous one. Yeah, yeah. So how do you come up with these? What's the inspiration? Yeah, um, so, you know, this actually, again, uh, goes back to Harvard. So when I was there, um, you know, many groups were um, sort of into this, like kind of on and off. So um, it would be kind of a way that, a fun way um, that we would advertise our open houses. So, um, you know, I'm not sure if that's something that you guys do at Wisconsin, but um, here and, and also at Harvard, um, you know, we would every fall, each group would have an open house um, and the open house would be an, an opportunity uh, to interact with the incoming students uh, and for us to kind of present, uh, you know, the, the work that we've done, the work that we hope to do um, and, and just kind of introduce ourselves as a group. And so uh, it was just a fun thing to try to come up with uh, a really interesting way to express uh, the science that we did um, in, in sort of uh, maybe a non-science way, right? And so um, the inspiration for this poster obviously is, you know, one way to think about oxidation is, is you know, you're combusting things, right? Um, so if you, if you burn something, you're oxidizing it. And so um, that was sort of the, the inspiration for, for this poster, um, which I, I can't take credit for actually. Um, this uh, guy named Nick Vermeulen, who is now a, a chemist at, um, 
Cortiva um, is the one that actually came up with this idea. Um, and he actually, these, these lab coats, we actually did paint them black. Um, and so a lot went into this particular poster, uh, which ended up being one of my favorites. So That's fantastic. Yeah, we definitely do that at Wisconsin too. I think you do. last yeah. year someone uh, photoshopped Teshik onto a, onto a Drake meme. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's great that's really great well you guys should yeah. post them because we would love to see uh we would love to see yours so we definitely should yeah, yeah. uh well with that i just want to thank you for coming on um and spending time to talk about your research and your non-research as well yeah um, and just thank you so much for your time Thank you guys so much. These were great questions and I really enjoyed it. And uh, you know, thanks for doing this for the community. I think it's a wonderful um, thing to have. And I know a lot of my students watch it and I'm sure um, that, that a lot of students are really benefiting from this. So 